Next Chapter Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last time on the show, I talked about the brothers Adi and Rudy Dossler, polar opposites that were competitive from birth, who founded a shoe company in a small German town in the wake of the First World War. Family drama and the bleak results of being pulled into service for the Nazis in World War II eventually drove the two men irreversibly apart, and their footwear enterprise that had pioneered the use of athletes as marketing devices was divided into what we know today as Adidas and Puma. So harsh was their enmity, though, that they could not contain it to just themselves. I mentioned last time that this division split the people of Herzog and Alrock down the middle. But I've yet to mention the two people affected by Adi and Rudy's ill will for one another who were most important to what came next. So now, let's turn to the story of Armin and Horst Dossler, the sons. As always, I'm Bridget Todd, and this is Beef. When Armin Dossler sat down with the Deutsche Bank in 1987 as they negotiated the seizure of his family's company, Puma, many would have thought this day was inevitable. This included his own father and the company's founder, Rudy Dossler. It didn't matter that Armin had taken the once provincial shoe company and turned it into a major player on the international stage. The company's growth under Armin's leadership didn't stop his own father from completely removing his son from his will. It was only by a stroke of luck and legal technicality that Armin was able to maintain ownership over the family's 60% of shares in the company after Rudy's death. And here, in the Deutsche Bank office, he was preparing to lose the family company forever. He had not been entirely without successes, such as getting his shoes worn by Pele, the greatest football player on earth. He also was able to finesse the Puma brand into being sold in most shoe retailers in the United States, aka the largest market in the world. But those both would seem like fading memories by 1987. Most reports of Armin's life after the seizure of his family's company portray a man who was never the same. Most claim that Armin lived the remainder of his days under a cloud of shame. Still, these reports might be assumptions based on how an individual typically feels under a similar circumstance. Could anyone truly empathize with Armin Dossler or know his true feelings? The perpetual emotional punching bag for his abusive father Armin not only inherited his family company, he also inherited his father's bitter, decades-old feud with his uncle, Adi, the founder of Adidas. As 58-year-old Armin said in the Deutsche Bank offices that day, it's easy to assume he felt shame at the loss of his family's company. But he probably felt relief as well. Relief at no longer having to participate in a family feud he didn't start, but that was thrust upon him. Relief that he no longer had to compete with his cousin Horst, the first son of Adi. By every conceivable metric, 
Horst was more successful at running his competitor company, a fact that Armin's father reminded him of constantly. Armin spent the majority of his life trying to win a war he didn't start for a general that abused him against an enemy he had no reason to hate. His failure was also his only escape. Born in 1936, the same year runner Jesse Owens triumphantly flew past the competition at the Berlin Olympics, Armin's cousin Horst Dossler was groomed from birth to succeed. The son of the master shoe craftsman and Adidas founder Adi, Horst resembled the perfect hybrid of his father and Uncle Rudy's personalities. Like his father, he was driven to perpetually think of new ideas. Like his uncle, he possessed a ruthless capitalist streak. Had the original Dossler brothers kept their shoe company unified, it is reasonable to suggest that Horst would have been the perfect son and nephew to lead the company further into the 20th century. But this was not to be. Like his cousin Armin, Horst's relationship with his father was incredibly strained. Unlike the dynamic of constant insult and belittlement between Armin and Rudy, the tension between Horst and his father was born of jealousy over each other's professional success. About seven years younger than Armin, Horst was the eldest son of Adi and Kata Dossler, and the obvious choice to take over Adidas, the family business that had reached international attention after the West German team wore its football cleats while winning the 1954 World Cup. As a sort of inheritor and training program, Horst was sent to the region of Alsace, France, a territory once battled over by the French and Germans, to start an Adidas affiliate. What was supposed to be a minor branch of the Adidas brand soon became so successful under Horst's leadership that it rivaled in size and power that of the Adidas home branch in Germany. It was the success of the Alsace branch where the trouble began for father and son. Adi Dassler was above all a craftsman. His main priority was never creating an international business behemoth, but instead creating the perfect athletic shoe. His entire life, he tinkered with new designs of footwear, and by his death, had more than 90 shoe design patents. To understand why Adi was jealous of his son, you have to take into account his personality, which could be described as meticulous and exacting. His jealousy was likely a symptom of fear. Adi felt threatened by the unexpected success a mere branch of his company was experiencing, and in another country, no less. He worried it would prove impossible for him to control. In some ways, these fears were justified. The consummate capitalist, Horst would never be satisfied with his branch if it didn't grow. To him, expansion was essential. To do otherwise meant certain ruin for Adidas. Horst tried to convince his father to broaden their brand to various forms of athletic wear, but Adi, ever the proud cobbler at heart, wanted his company to stick to what it knew best, shoes. Stymied by his father's stubbornness, Horst was forced to create a secret off-brand Adidas called Arena that allowed him to experiment in the world of athleisure and competitive swimming. He even used the factories meant to manufacture Adidas shoes to clandestinely assemble the new items. But setting up a new and unauthorized sports apparel offshoot of Adidas was not enough for Horst. Since he was officially installed in his father's company, Horst would continue the practice his father began, which made Adidas so incredibly successful in Germany during the early years finding the best athletes in the world and getting them to wear Adidas shoes during competition. Naomi Braithwaite, a professor of fashion marketing, management, and communication at Nottingham Trent University, notes that this simple innovation is central to the DNA of nearly every brand on earth to this day. Sports figures were incredibly important, you know, for, for framing the success of these brands because they started as sportswear. But now when we look and see, you know, 
Nike as an example being worn on influencers on Instagram it's not about sport then it's completely different so there are so many different type of celebrities today to project the success of your brand which there weren't in those days so you know sports figures well there were obviously music figures but sports figures were particularly iconic and so so important definitely as a designer whether it's sports or anything else you need people to buy it and wear it so you can have a fantastic design it can look fantastic and it doesn't get taken up at a mass level then it's very difficult to kind of keep going you know you you need um, your consumer definitely but then there's the everyday consumer the ordinary but also the extraordinary your your celebs whether they're instagram influencers uh, sports stars uh, film stars fashion designers whatever so it's important to have i guess that balance you know because people in society well generally the realms of marketing there's a lot of power when you you have the right person wearing your product you know, it's not just about the billboards or the, the magazine adverts anymore. It's about the people wearing it and how it's seen. The idea of convincing the public to buy a pair of shoes because their favorite athlete wore them might seem like an obvious idea in today's world, but it was only the genius of Adi Dossler that made it so. And yet... While paying athletes to wear Adidas shoes helped convince the public to buy those same shoes, it also forced Horst and Adidas into a difficult position. They would always be held hostage by the negotiating power of the athletes, who themselves were becoming more aware of their own selling power as global sports figures. He's wearing Converse, the shoes of the stars. Horst understood this. And in an effort to take further control of the sporting world for the Dossler family, he devised a plan his father could never have imagined back in the days of the Second World War while struggling to keep his factories open. The governing body for most international football leagues in the world is the Fédération Internationale de Football Association, otherwise known as FIFA. In 1974, an election was held within FIFA to declare a new president for the organization. A relationship with the president of FIFA would obviously be beneficial to any organization that sold cleats for football players, and Horst had every intention of forging that bond between FIFA, Adidas, and most importantly, himself. The only problem for Horst was the man he was backing to win the FIFA presidency, Stanley Rouse, was clearly going to lose to the dashing former water polo player from Brazil, Joao Avalanji. The night before the election, When it was clear to Horst that his favorite horse was going to lose the race, he acted like any great businessman and instantly pivoted. As with any great success, some luck played a part too. The man who would become FIFA's next president just happened to be staying in the same hotel as Horst the night before the election. In what appeared to be an innocent, conciliatory gesture for backing the wrong man, Horst showed up at Joao's hotel room with a bottle of champagne. And what transpired in that room would change the landscape of professional sports to this very day. Like Horst, Avalanji was a visionary who could see how a partnership between them could be mutually beneficial. Together, they saw a way for FIFA to make lots more money and line their own pockets at the same time. This was their plan. One, only the largest and most notable countries in the world would be allowed to sponsor the World Cup. This would both add prestige to the tournament and ensure viewers for the sponsors. Two, 
only one company from each business market will be allowed to sponsor FIFA tournaments, meaning only one shoe company, one soda company, one financial company, etc. Three, only FIFA would be allowed to sell these sponsorship rights, thus maintaining control of the majority of the profits from the hosting country. Four, lastly, and most important to Horst, FIFA would have to use an intermediary company to administer all these details. As it happened, Horst had just set up his own sports marketing company, International Sports and Leisure, otherwise known as ISL. He was able to convince Joao to conduct all FIFA licensing through ISL for the next three decades. Now, in addition to having one secret athleisure company, Horst had another, even more powerful sports marketing agency. This would make him the most powerful figure in all of international sporting, granting him sole power to conduct business on behalf of the governing body of the world's most popular sport, as well as the entire international business community. At this moment, Horst may have seemed unstoppable, but he had no idea that his much-ignored cousin, Armin, was planning a major coup himself. Unlike the brothers Rudy and Adi, their sons, Armin and Horst, had very little reason to despise one another, and they really didn't. The truth is, Rudy and Adi's son's driving motivation was not the same familial hatred that drove their fathers. Instead, it was the much more common and relatable pressures of children looking to earn the approval of their parents and even possibly outdo them. While they were both aware of the festering abhorrence that divided their fathers, Armin and Horst were congenial with each other and dealt with one another much more amicably. However, their brands were still competitors. So, in order to prevent their company's own mutually assured destruction, the two cousins came to a very important agreement. In an industry whose success was dominated by which important athletes wore which shoes, there was one figure who stood tall above the rest, Pele of Brazil. What's Pele now? What a beautiful goal for Pele! El Rey Pele! 100 goals for Renowned as the greatest football player the game had ever known, getting Pele to wear an Adidas or Puma cleat will be the most important victory in the fight for sports sponsorship supremacy. The American best not live home without it. The only problem was, as the most popular athlete in the most popular sport in the world, both companies could bankrupt themselves trying to secure sponsorship from him. Surely, once approached by either cousin, he would go to the other and begin a bidding war that neither company could afford. So the cousins prudently decided that all athletes across the globe were fair game, except for Pele, who neither cousin would approach. It never occurred to Horst that his more mild, timid, and frankly, less successful cousin would ever have the temerity to double-cross him. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested. 
through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Was this always going to be the direction the sons would head in? Were no other, less malignant options ever really available to them? Award-winning German filmmaker Chris Silber says, unfortunately, the path their father set them on may have been impossible to escape. I feel we're sort of tossed into a world that we obviously didn't choose to come into. You know, all of a sudden there's all of this going on. We find ourselves colliding with all these different interests and people around us. And I think, especially inside families, we're, we're desperately looking for, why am I here? What's the reason for all this? Because technically it could be completely meaningless. And this is a very philosophical way of attacking it. But hell, did my life just sort of happen? And then it sometimes it's over and that's it. No, we need to find meaning. We're meaning-making uh, machines, I think someone once said. And so the part of making meaning is to say, okay, so my family, my roots, this, this is something I can latch on to. This is meaning. I need to carry the story of my family. And so whoever is able to really impress us deeply in our building as we build our identity in those so-called formative years, uh, if they plant a seed of hatred or enmity in us or competition in us, I think it's very hard for people to overcome that. The sons just basically did what they were taught to do, which is be aggressive and, 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 and uh, fight the other side just as you would on a soccer field or in a sports competition. You know, they, they were deciding to, to, to hold on to the past. There's like a lot of deep-seated anger and hatred that people can carry for their entire lives. So I think when we don't have some sort of spiritual or, or purposeful higher meaning enlightenment in our life, it becomes extremely hard to not be bitter. Tired of playing second fiddle in both the family and the international community to his more esteemed cousin, Armin made his move. Under the metaphorical cover of darkness, Armin sent a representative to Pele's home to offer him $25,000, an enormous sum at the time, plus an additional $100,000 in future deals. What occurred next was a masterstroke that would influence all sports marketing for decades to come. Instead of releasing a formal commercial or advertisement of any kind, Armin Dossler came up with a far greater plan. During the 1970 World Cup quarterfinal match between Brazil and Peru, Pele was instructed to ask the referee for a brief moment before the opening kick to tie his shoes. And if advertising can ever be considered art, what occurred next was the Mona Lisa of hawking merch. Pele bent down to tie his shoes, and every camera covering the most watched sporting event on the planet zoomed in to show the world the clear white puma stripe across Pele's cleats. Pulling off this feat would be like a company managing to secure a commercial during the Super Bowl without paying for airtime. You have to imagine that beneath the rage Horst must have felt for being double-crossed, he must have gained a little respect for his milquetoast cousin. Even more shocking than Armin poaching Pele for Puma on one of the most watched television events in the world, was the fact that he still couldn't earn any approval from his father, who accomplished far less for his own company. But Armin wasn't finished. He had a plan to take his Puma further than Rudy could have imagined. There was one small issue, though. Upon his father's death in 1974, 
Armin discovered he had been entirely removed from Rudy's will. Being cut out of the will might have been an escape ladder Armin could have used to climb out of the quicksand of his family feud and business. Yet instead, a German court found a technicality that allowed Armin to maintain 60% control over the company. His younger brother Gerd inherited the remaining 40. And like a man that manages to escape from his burning home unscathed, only to rush back in to try to save his favorite belongings, Armin charged forward. The next phase of his plan was to get Puma shoes sold in the world's largest buying market, the United States of America. Ralph Samson wears Pumas. The man can dunk. But you don't have to be Ralph Samson to dunk. The ultimate goal was not introducing Puma to that market, but instead to increase the value of Puma for the day he prepared to do the unthinkable. Take the company public. Puma and Adidas were family-owned businesses, and the thought that Dosslers would own anything less than 100% of either company would have been inconceivable to the original founding brothers. Perhaps growing the company in America, putting it on the market, and making a vast fortune would have cemented Armin as a success in everyone's eyes. Perhaps it would have provided him the perfect scenario to exit the company, which had been the source of so much personal pain. His entire adulthood spent under the domineering abuse of his father, who often belittled him in front of business partners, Armin was about to finally achieve everything. But unfortunately, he made a disastrous miscalculation. I know a place. I know a place. Where life is good. Where life is good. A brand new place. A brand new place. In your neighborhood. Your neighborhood. In an effort to boost sales in America, Armin agreed to allow the megastore chain Kmart to sell Pumas. Kmart could buy Puma in huge bulk and sell them at a discounted price, which boutique stores like Foot Locker couldn't afford to do. For a brief time, this plan succeeded. Puma sales skyrocketed in America due to Puma's partnership with Kmart. With this initial sales boost, Armin took Puma public in 1986. But within a year, he would lose the company. Upon discovering that Kmart was selling Pumas, Reebok and other small but important boutique shoe stores stopped selling Puma in their stores. The reason was that by allowing Pumas to be sold at Kmart, the image of the Puma brand became, for lack of a better word, uncool. Armin's lack of understanding of the American shoe market backfired on him with terrible consequences. Sales quickly plummeted. And a year after going public, with the stock at an all-time low, Deutsche Bank had to step in and do for Armin what he was never able to do himself, force him out of the company that had been the source of his misery for so long. His father's company was officially out of his hands and would soon be bought by a private equity firm. Whether it was despair or absolution, you could only guess what Armin felt. Meanwhile, Horst Dossler was as restless as ever. His agreement with FIFA made him the unofficial kingmaker within the organization, with all future candidates for FIFA president needing to seek out his endorsement. By the time of his father Adi's death in 1978, Horst was running three separate successful businesses, Adidas, Arena, and his sports management company, ISL. By this point, Adidas was now a successful brand in the United States as well. But, like his cousin, Horst's unfamiliarity with American culture would be his undoing. In the early 1980s, Adidas wasn't only the king of international football, it was also the primary brand worn by NBA athletes. Yet three years before his death in 1987, Horst Dossler made a decision that would lose his family control over his father's beloved company. While Adidas gained traction in the U.S., a little-known American company called Nike, which used literal waffle irons to create its signature shoe bottoms, was beginning to make headway on its own. 
From day one, runners have taken their sport rather seriously. Today at Nike, we know even more. Nike's shoes were lighter than Adidas, which Horst thought made them flimsy, and they were produced in China at a significantly cheaper rate, rather than the German and French factories which produced Adidas. It's a little tough, and that's the man with the ball now. Black getting it across to Jordan, the freshman. Jordan goes up and drops it through, and there is the first basket. In 1984, a young college basketball player named Michael Jordan was drafted with the third pick into the NBA. Jordan was an enormous fan of Adidas and hoped desperately to get signed by the company for a sponsorship deal. However, at the time, physically larger players such as Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar dominated the game. So Adidas ultimately turned down Michael Jordan for a sponsorship deal, deeming him, quote, too small. Rejected but not defeated, Michael Jordan turned to the growing but still relatively small company that specialized in running shoes, Nike which enthusiastically offered him a deal. On September 15th, Nike created a revolutionary new basketball shoe. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. Air Jordans from Nike. Partnered with Michael Jordan, who would soon become the most popular athlete the world has ever seen, Nike would go on to conquer the sports world and wrest all control from Adidas as the primary sports brand in the world. Unlike Armin, though, Horst would not have the displeasure of ever learning this fate. From 1984 to 1987, he continued to make deals and act as the unofficial king of FIFA, all the while dying of cancer. It was plain to everyone who worked with him that he was losing weight and in severe physical decline. Blessed, or cursed, however one chooses to see it, with his father's burning drive, Horst continued running his three companies. By the time of his death, Horst would be spared the knowledge that the miscalculation behind his decision to reject Michael Jordan led to Nike's market takeover and his family selling their control over Adidas to a private equity firm. Eventually, Horst would be known after his demise as the father of sports sponsorship. What started as a petty feud between two German brothers over wives and shoes turned into a Greek tragedy for one of their sons and a story of capitalist triumph for the other. And yet, it still all ended the same way. Despite all their failures and successes, no members of the Dossler family own Adidas or Puma today. Brands can, can fluctuate and, and in, in popularity. And if you look at the sneaker market over the last few years, I mean, or last decades, perhaps we should say. You, you do see that there are sometimes Adidas is the best seller, sometimes it's Nike. I guess now, of course, it's Nike and has been, but Adidas, um, you know, has its own particular consumer and it has its iconic uh, style and iconic shoes. So I always think the Stan Smith story is a really good one there because I guess Stan Smith was very iconic at the time that that product was created and marketed and endorsed, and then it kind of lost its way and then, um, I think it was Phoebe Philo, head designer of Chloe. At the time, she came out on the catwalk at the end of her show wearing Stan Smiths, and suddenly they became desirable again. You started to see people wearing them. So having a luxury couture fashion designer where your product sort of changed its its dimensions and it became became cool. And I guess um, 
you know, today it's uh, it's out there. It's still maybe not as cool as the Dunk or the Jordan, but it's still got its its place in 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 the world and its place as a desired consumer object. But of course, design is undeniably important. The aesthetics, the innovation, the material materiality of your product is also important. So you can't really have one without the other. I guess it's a long answer. Beef is a production of Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode was written by James Levine, with help from Ben Austin Docampo and Pete Musto, who also edited this episode. Our executive producer is show creator Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you? Next Chapter Podcasts.